What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a professor who works with individuals who are going to be teachers, one of the things we talk about in class is how they can develop literacy-rich environments in their classrooms. This means that I help them to create the kinds of classrooms that will allow children to be engaged in a variety of reading and writing, speaking and listening activities. One of the main things we focus on is for prospective teachers to build an amazing classroom library. A classroom is print-rich when, if among other things, it has a library. I'm a vocal advocate for classroom libraries, but I'm also just as much an advocate for homes that are filled with books, too. Research has clearly shown that children who live in print-rich environments and who are read to during the first years of life are much more likely to learn to read on schedule. So it's clear that having books in the home is significant to children's development. Now, I am very aware of the many contexts and situations where creating a print-rich environment in a home is very difficult. I can't in any way downplay or negate the harsh realities that many children and families face in today's world. It may not be easy or even feasible for many to build print-rich homes, but we can try And there are lots of ways we can access the riches of print, even if there are limitations. For example, there are many ways to get access to materials for free. One of my personal favorites are local public libraries. Libraries are a great community resource that can fill a gap by providing many free materials. And while these may not be able to stay in the home forever, they can certainly be there for some time. Public libraries are also a great way to buy books. For example, my library has a $1 paperback used bookstore, and prices like these can make books accessible to a wider range of individuals. There are also lots of companies and programs that work to put books in kids' homes. A quick internet search for free books for kids can identify dozens of them. Along with using free resources, I also encourage families to get everyone involved. Encourage aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas to buy books for birthday or Christmas gifts, or get the whole neighborhood together and host a book exchange. So no matter how you are able to do it, we here at Rachel's World encourage families to keep a supply of books and other reading materials where children can reach them, and as possible, add new books as children's skills and interests change, because that's the kind of print-rich environment we'd love to see every child have. Are kids capable of understanding the beautiful and the complex? Perhaps we should give them more credit than we do. Are they able to discern quality in media? How can we help them sift and sort? Ilya Kowalchuk, Director of Education of the Pop Culture Classroom, talks to Rachel on Today's World's Awaiting about how he used video game design and comics in his middle school classes to generate interest in learning other subjects. Kowalchuk also shares how he feels adults can help children become more discerning media critics. Ilya Kowalchuk, as a child, avoided schoolwork by playing outside, reading comics, and mastering video games. 
Buckling down for college, he later earned a B.A. in history and a master's of education. His teaching career was spent at Horizons K-8 School in Boulder, Colorado, bringing his experience with pop culture together with his expertise as an educator he co-founded Pop Culture Classroom and the Denver Comic-Con. Here's Rachel and Ilya Kowalchuk. We're on the phone today with Ilya. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? I am doing so well. I am very, very excited to speak with you today. You are part of a project called the Pop Culture Classroom Project. So to start out, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that project is? So Pop Culture Classroom is a nonprofit based here in Denver, and the um, nonprofit was started with this idea of partnering a large-scale pop culture convention with year-round educational outreach that uses the pop culture that we've come to know and love as uh, lifelong nerds that we are. That is so true. I love that we have all these lifelong nerds because we definitely uh, add something to to the world. I, I think some people might be interested to know that you actually have a degree in history and a teaching certificate. So you have some really strong background in what we would call kind of the more traditional aspects of education. So what drew you to this project with that kind of more traditional background to bring the geek part of yourself into the mix? Well, that was when I was teaching. Uh, I was a classroom teacher in, in middle school. Um, I taught uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and um, I was a generalist. It was a small school, so I had the opportunity to teach several different subjects. And in one of my honors algebra classes, I had a student who um, we he and I were both friends online uh, on the Xbox gaming platform. And uh, one day after school. Um, I was home and playing Halo, and I noticed that he was also online playing Halo. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the next day we came into class together, and he hadn't completed his math homework, um, which was really funny and, and striking for me because he loved math. He was a great math student. Uh, and what I did, what I chose to do as a teacher was come down on him and, and really be hard and say, you know, you, you were playing Xbox last night. Why didn't you get your math homework done? Um, and what I didn't do was I didn't ask him why he made that choice. Um, and I realized that he was at his dad's house and things at his dad's house weren't always great. So maybe he made that choice as a way to cope with something that was going on. And, um, and it made me realize that instead of, instead of using this this opportunity that we had to connect with one another through video gaming, through pop culture, I, I misused it, you know, and made him feel badly about the choice he made. He was crushed and defeated, um, you know, by my coming down on him. And so what I said was, well, what if, what if I flipped the script? What if I used these, 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 these games or these comics or these dances that I was doing as, a, as an educational opportunity uh, and I started teaching these classes about video game design and comic book culture and and all that stuff. And um, it was it was profound because the kids who were on the margins in my school who weren't really vested in traditional academics they flocked to my classes about that kind of content. Um, and what's more is after we were done, 
those kids were so much more invested in my history class, in my math class, in my writing class, that, that when we came back together, it wasn't a panacea. They didn't all of a sudden become the best students in the class, but they were much more invested and willing to give me their best work instead of me having to drag it out of them. And I really believe it was because we had built that relationship through these pop culture-oriented classes. Ilya, I really appreciate all those insights. And I, I think that it just goes to show people particularly who kind of degrade pop culture as kind of a lesser form and particularly a lesser form when it comes to kind of educative experiences. How would you speak to those kinds of people that would say, oh, you know, pop culture, that's just something you do on the side or, oh, pop culture, it's it's corrupting our youth or, or those kinds of those kinds of things that say, you know, this really doesn't have any value, particularly as part of our educational system. I, I think that there's some validity to that, you know. Um, when we look at the the depth and complexity of music that's taking place today, it is different. It is more simplistic. But what I like to say to those people is, okay, then talk to your students, talk to your children, explain to them why you think that this is that this is less complex, that this is less thought-provoking. Have a conversation about whether or not Honey Boo Boo is valid in terms of an educational resource. Criticize it. Teach your kids, teach your students to be both critical consumers and contributors towards pop culture. To say, if you think this is junk, this is garbage, then help the kids understand why. They're being shoved so much content in front of them all day, every day, that if they're not given the tools to discern what's high quality and what's low quality, they're just going to default down to the lowest common denominator. So I think that that if we give our, our students, our kids, the opportunity to understand what makes parts of our popular culture complex and astounding and, and pushes societal discourse, I think there's a lot of value in that. I love making that distinction because I, I think you're very right that sometimes we it, we make it either or, that it's the pulpy kind of stuff or it's the high art and it has to be one or the other. And this connection, too, you make to these kinds of critical literacies and media literacies is also very intriguing to me. How do you think we should go about that? What How do we start these conversations with our kids to help them understand that there is this continuum of, of culture out there and that we need to be more critical consumers of these kinds of things? How do we start those conversations? I mean, I think it's up to us as parents and teachers to point out the kinds of shallowness and also complexity when we see it. There's this opportunity that we have as, you know, a lot of family movies, as a lot of music and songs and whatnot are created for a broader audience, that when we experience these things together, we can tell our kids, look, I don't, I don't think that this is really great, and, and here's why. There's no real barrier to media these days. You can pull something out of your pocket and watch a two-hour movie if you want. You can download a YouTube from anywhere in the world. You can learn any skill. Um, to me, it feels like the opportunities are abound. And if we don't take an active role in supporting this discernment as teachers and parents, then, then the Internet's going to do that. I think that that really is an important way to look at it because we really need to just 
engage in these kinds of conversations and help them understand what is out there. You, you mentioned earlier that there is these high forms of pop culture and the more sophisticated forms. What would be some examples of that um, that you might uh, offer to our listeners out there as some really fine examples of, of how pop culture can really be a more, a more fine art context? Oh, gosh. Interestingly, the, one of the first things that jumped to my mind was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's one of those things that, to me, comes, comes as like an example of a popular culture movie that really moves societal discourse. Another one, so I'll just jump around here. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about some graphic novels that I'm, I'm aware of. One of the best ones that I've read lately is called I Kill Giants. It's by Joe Kelly, and it's a story about a fifth-grade girl who's struggling with some, some a crushing crisis at home. And um, the artwork and the metaphor that's written into the story is absolutely stunning. Um, I would say it's, it's a brilliant read for maybe sixth grade and above. You know, another one that, that is a classic is Mouse, M-A-U-S, by Art Spiegelman. It, it won a Pulitzer Prize for Literature as a graphic novel. It's a story about Mr. Spiegelman's father's lifelong struggle with um, his escaping and living through the Holocaust. You know, we another another graphic novel that we teach is called Yummy. It's the story of a South Side shorty in Chicago who it's a fictionalized retelling of a true story of an eleven year old boy who got caught up in gang warfare and wanting to belong, accidentally shot and killed a fourteen year old girl, went hiding for three days and then unfortunately was hunted down and killed by the gang that was supposed to be protecting him. You know, stories like these are real life stories that a lot of our a lot of our teachers and parents don't know about that they exist uh, this idea that comics are buff men in really uh, skin tight clothing or unrealistic female body types you know who have these you know these strapless garments on and they're fighting enemies in them and with with no wardrobe malfunctions that that those those kinds of stories while they still exist you know, the, the amount of creators, females, people of color, GLBTQ creators, they're writing stories about their lives. They're writing these real-life stories that are just profound and moving, and they're winning all sorts of awards. You know, th- there's so many out there that, that I would say best thing to do is to go online, look, you know, um, look for, for games and comics, and there's a lot out there that, that are really easy to find. Thank you so much, Ilya. I really appreciate you offering that wonderful insight to help us see how much depth and diversity this this genre of popular culture has for us. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's, yeah, I love talking about it. I get to do this all day, so um, it's my pleasure. Ilya Kowalchuk, Pop Culture Classroom Director of Education, discussing how we as adults can help our children discover high-quality media. Next, Rachel chats with children's book author Dustin Hansen about a series that he wrote and illustrated titled Microsaurs. The idea for the book was fueled by his passion as a dinosaur nerd. The premise, as he'll explain, came to him during an unexpected stay in the hospital. What if dinosaurs didn't become extinct, but just got smaller? Think Honey, I Shrunk the Kids meets Jurassic Park. Here's Rachel and Dustin Hansen. 
We're in studio today with Dustin. Welcome, Dustin. Thank you. You are the author and illustrator of a new book series called Microsaurs, and I think it's so fun and delightful, and I'm excited to introduce it to our listening audience today. So tell us a little bit about where this came from. Where, where did this all start? Well, do you want the real truth? The real truth. Yes, we only the allow real the real truth on this <laughs> program. <laughs> okay, here's the real truth. Um, I've been working with my agent for a few years trying to find the right book, right? Um, and we had kind of fumbled around with a few things. And I had this idea in the back of my head that had been toying around for a long time. And I thought it was honestly too personal, right? I grew up in rural Utah, goofing around in the literally in the steps of dinosaurs. Um, I've always been a huge fan of of paleontology and paleo art in particular. Um, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for the Jurassic Park movies. Like, you name it. Like, I'm a dinosaur nerd. Um, and, and I love everything about it. I love the complex names. I love everything about dinosaurs. And I really thought it was too internal. And I'd had this idea for quite a while, um, maybe about a year. I'd been toying around with this, you know, trying to write a dinosaur idea. And of all things... Do you remember a few years ago when the Ebola outbreak happened in mm-hmm. the United States and the South? Um, I was at New York Comic Con. This is going to be an odd story. I was at New York Comic Con. They had a little sore on the side of my stomach, and within an hour, it went from you know a little tiny sore to something that was pretty big. Um, I thought, what in the world? I mean, freaked me out. Um, flew home as fast as I could. Got to the doctor, and they quarantined me like I was an Ebola guy. And so I'm in this room, like in a bubble room, right? <laughs> I'm in this crazy bubble room. The only TV channel I really have is all this Ebola stuff. The doctors that come in are dressed just like the guys on the Ebola TV. I'm thinking, I'm going to die of Ebola. Um, turns out I had a really weird microbiology, you know, microbiological um, fungus that had gotten to my stomach somehow. So I was quarantined for like a week and a half with nothing to do. No laptop, like nothing. So I've got all this time to just free think. Um, so I had this, like I said, I've always had this dinosaur itch that I wanted to scratch. And now I'm talking, every doctor that comes in to talk to me about like microbiology and, you know, these like tiny pathogens and how dangerous they are and, and how much they've learned about it in the last couple of years. So I've got this weird combination of going out like the big massive dinosaurs all the way down to the world's tiniest, you know, pathogens. And somehow the title came to me first. Microsource came first. And I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty bizarre. And I went from that to what if the dinosaurs didn't actually go extinct? What if through evolution they just got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because, you know, all of us humans, the most, the most dangerous creatures on planet Earth, um, were taking up all their space. And so they had to try to find smaller and smaller and smaller places to, to survive. So that's really what what happened is I came up with this idea, this weird idea that, like I said, there were, there were influences there for years, but just this one word, microsource, made me see this whole series of, oh my gosh, this is like Jurassic Park meets Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It works. Like, how do I not play in this space? So I literally went from in the hospital, I did have my phone. I sent an email to my agent who just immediately got it. And it went like from maybe we should keep looking for the right book to that's it, let's move on it. And so the minute I got home, I started sketching. And that's, you know, 
kind of that's where it all started. The rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> that really is a wonderful connection because it really goes, just goes to show how in a creative process, different things just fit suddenly. And they say, okay, this is where we're going with this. And this is how it's going to be produced. So it, it's a wonderful story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Because I think particularly our listeners and the kids out there that they will be helping, it really just goes to show just experiences and, and how you look at the world makes these things happen. So why is it that you wanted to tell this story with pictures? I know you're an artist, but you could have just told it with text alone. So why did why did you want to tell it with pictures too? Yeah, yeah, that's that's also probably a long story too. Like I said, I work as a, a artist in the video game industry um, and I have for 20 some odd years. And I've always loved to draw. That's always been something that's been very important to me. I've never been great at cartooning. And so I had this goal of trying to become a better cartoonist. Um, so that was kind of goal number one. And and I didn't, I didn't really even – I know this is crazy, but I never really thought of kind of crossing my art and pictures. Like, I mean, words and, and art. Um, and there were some things I wanted to show that I could have spent thousands of words writing or I could – pull those out and handle them in a simple illustration to kind of show what happens when someone shrinks from being normal size to, you know, the size of an ant. And it's been written a lot. A lot of people have kind of hidden had that idea, but it sure is fun to draw. And so part of it was going back to knowing what I do well and going, gosh, you know, why not take advantage? Like, what are you doing? Why not do what you do best? Um, and then the other side of that was I really wanted to write a little bit shorter form fiction than I had done in the past. And the best way for me to do that was to edit by way of illustration. So as you're doing this, is there a specific audience that you think is, is a really perfect fit for Microsoft? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's a eight or a nine-year-old child, boy, girl that loves adventure. I mean, it, these really at their heart are adventure books. Um, and a kid who might be scientifically minded, but even more than that, might be open to the fact that we don't know everything about science and might be willing to say, what if? Like, I love that what if kid. And I, I really think these are good what if books. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, to me, the, it's I have a niece named Hadley. She is precocious. She is uh, an, an amazing reader. She's just dig, digs deep into everything. And the great thing to me when I talk to her, even like just say hi to her. She is full of life and full of questions. And she's my reader. Like every single sentence I write, I think two things. Will Hadley like this? Good. Will this make Hadley laugh? Even better. Um, so, you know, sometimes it helps me as a writer to have that reader in mind. So. And I love that because there are those readers out there who just have those what ifs or those scientific minds. And I, I agree that these books are perfect for that particular kind oh, of reader. So tell us a little bit about the future of Microsaurus. I know, I know we've got a couple of books. Yeah. And so where, where is this going? <laughs> <laughs> it's going everywhere. Uh, yeah, Microsaurus, the first one called Follow That Tiny Dactyl, um, came out in January. So it hasn't been out for very long. Um, it's doing well, getting good reviews, which is fun, especially fun reviews when I go do school visits and kids are like, I already read your book. It's great. Like uh, that's payment enough for a writer right there. Um, so I'm happy with how book one has gone out. Book two is due in July, July 18th. 
and it's the Microsaur's Tiny Raptor Pack Attack, and it is unbelievably complex, crazy. I, I tell you, I've said many times, as the illustrator of this book, I need to have a deep talk with the author because instead of just writing a couple of raptors, he promised a raptor pack. So there are some pages where there's like 15 dinosaurs on each illustration and it was completely wild and completely crazy, but super fun for me to do. Um, so yeah, that's book two. And then it, it is a planned six book series that'll be coming out every six months. So they should be every January, every July until 2018. Well, I'm sure readers will look forward to, to every January and every uh, July for a couple of so. years to, <laughs> to do that. So what do you hope readers will take from this series? I mean, what what is your basic hope as an author that that kids will find as they read these books? I really hope that they will find that more than anything, adventure is out there. Like, it's everywhere. And I'm not saying that everyone's going to have a microterium in their backyard full of tiny dinosaurs the size of ants. I hope I do. You might. I, I hope I do. That's my wish. <laughs> you should look really carefully. I'm going to look really close. Yes. There, there were fairies when I was a girl, so hopefully there's microsaurs <laughs> now. <laughs> right. Um, but the fact that you said there were fairies when you were a girl, like that's what I hope, is that I hope the kids will take books like mine and other books that kind of have this imaginative core and that they will find their own stories and that they will – Kind of grow some confidence through discovery and 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 adventure. And the two characters in my book, that's really what they are. You know, they start off the book, one is really confident, one isn't. And they grow confidence kind of in each other and in their friendship through these adventures that they go on. And that's that's what I would hope. Well, I think that that's a great hope, and hopefully our listeners out there will go and grab these fun books for their kids who love adventures and questions and great. and will help help them to see that there really is there really are going to be microsaurs in our backyards, hopefully They're we'll everywhere. cross our fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I brought one with me. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dustin. Appreciate it. Thank you. Rachel Wadham with children's book author Dustin Hansen discussing his series Microsaurs. Now, we finish up with Margaret Neville, book buyer at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, who reviews I Dissent, Ruth Bader Ginsburg Makes Her Mark, by Debbie Levy. This book was written by Debbie Levy and illustrated by Elizabeth Baddeley. I hope I pronounced her name right. Now, everybody knows that uh, RBG is a woman on the Supreme Court. This book is a biography that's aimed at probably a slightly older audience than the traditional picture book, but any child that would sit and listen to it, would, there are things they might enjoy. I love one of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg says. I'm reading from the book itself here. Disagreeing does not make a person disagreeable. In fact, it can change the world. Isn't that the way we should all be working these days? This is a book that's richly illustrated. It goes through Ruth's entire life. It shows you how she was motivated to work for change and how hard she had had it at sometimes as a young Jewish woman. Um, unfortunately, racism was alive in her world too. Ruth was an extremely accomplished and smart young woman. She was bound on the trail to be the valedictorian for her high school class. Sadly, her beloved mother died the day before graduation, so she did not get to give the speech. But you see in these little stories, vignettes from Ruth's life, how she has evolved into 
this major force in our legal system. It makes me proud to be an American when I read about Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she recognizes our innate individual humanity and she works so we can live the best lives we can. Um, she's a mother, she's a justice, she's a lawyer, she's been a teacher. Um, she got along with um, Judge Scalia who passed away a little while ago. She says in the book, we oftentimes did not get along legally, but we always got along as friends. Um, the book ends with a couple of pages in um, single-spaced type photographs of uh, Judge Ginsburg that will add a little more actual uh, straight-up information to uh, Judge Ginsburg's story. I, I love this book. Might be one of my favorite of the year, to be honest. Margaret Neville, book buyer at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, reviewing I Dissent, Ruth Bader Ginsburg Makes Her Mark by Debbie Levy. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.